as some of you have, one of the issues you face is, is how you're going to live. Are, are you going to keep living like you did in your old country, speaking your old language, uh, wearing the, the, the customary clothing of that culture, keeping your old customs? Or should you change? Should you learn and adopt the language, the customs, the clothing, and so on of the new country, the new culture? The way you live is an important issue you face. The same thing is true of the people of God, of the church of God. When we are part of God's church, one of the issues we face is the way we live. Are we to live like the rest of the world? Or are we to live, are we to think, are we to act, behave differently? The temptation, I think you all agree, is is, is of course to be like the rest of the world. To think and act like, like the world. And that temptation can be especially strong uh, for young people. But it's a powerful temptation really for all of us. Because it seems like the smarter option in many ways. I mean, how else, how else are we going to survive? It's certainly the easier, easier option. It's what our flesh, our, our sinful nature prefers and even demands. And, and so that temptation, there's that temptation to just blend in with the rest of the world in the way we live. This was also a temptation for the Philippian church. You see, like us, they lived in a time and a place that was ungodly and full of temptation. And even hostile, hostile to Christ and Christianity. Their, their beloved apostle, their beloved minister, Paul, who had come to them and, and preached the gospel to them and had been used by God to, to plant a church in Philippi. He was in a Roman prison waiting for the verdict of the Roman emperor. What's more, their own flesh, their, their sinful nature was urging them that way. We, we see that from the relationship problems that they were having and that, that comes up in, in this book. They were being tempted. They were, they were being pressured to live like the world, to think and act the way they used to live before they heard, before they believed the gospel. And that's really the temptation. That's really the struggle that our text this morning, Philippians 4 Verses 8 to 9 addresses. It's about the way we live. It's about the way we think. It's about the way we act. You could, eat, you could say in a way that issue, the way we live, is, is really the central issue of the whole book of Philippians. Maybe you remember as we have been working through it, how at near the end of chapter 1, Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, calls, calls us to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. He calls us to live as citizens of heaven. And, and from chapter 2 on till our text, he's been showing us what that looks like. But now here in verses 8 and 9, are Paul, or rather God through Paul, he's making one final call. At least one final direct call. In a way, it's a summary of everything he's, he's said since the end of chapter 1. He's calling us, he's urging us to godly living, to godly thinking, to godly acting. That's what verses 8 and 9 
is all about. Let's read those verses together again. It says there, finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. Those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do. And the God of peace shall be with you. These verses are about the way God's people, not just in Philippi, but also here in southern Alberta, are to live. The way we are to think. The way we are to act. And so with God's help, we want to look at our text under the theme, God calls us to godly living. We'll consider, first of all, the practice of godly living. Secondly, the source of godly living. And thirdly, the reward of godly living. What does godly living look like? Well, our text tells us. Verse 8 says we're to think on, we're to dwell on, we're to fix our thoughts, our minds on certain things. And and then you go to verse 9 and we're told we need to do certain things. And both those verbs in the Greek are in the present tense, meaning that they're, they're, we're, we're to think on, we're to do these things, not just now and then, not occasionally, but continually. We're to think on and do these things, not just on Sundays, but on every day. Not just at church, but at home and at work and at school. We're to keep on thinking on certain things and we're to keep doing certain things. We're to continually practice them, both of them. Not one or the other, not thinking or doing, but thinking and doing. The practice of godly living involves these two things, thinking on certain things and doing certain things. But what are those things? What are the things God calls us to think on and to do? Well, think about, first of all, let's look at the things we're called to think on. Verse 8 gives us a list of eight things. And the first thing we're to keep thinking on is is whatsoever things are true. In other other words, whatsoever things, whatever things agree with reality, whatever things agree with facts. But how do we know what those things are? We know by the Bible. Because God, the Bible is the word of God and God is true. He cannot lie. And so we must keep thinking. We must continually meditate on what his word, what the Bible teaches. The reason we fell into sin, you see, is because Adam and Eve didn't do that. God had told them that if they ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would surely die. But Satan told them they wouldn't surely die. No, you'll become like God. And Adam and Eve, what did they do? They listened to Satan, didn't they? They stopped fixing their thoughts on the word of God and they fixed them instead on the lie of the devil. In our text, and how often, how often haven't we repeated that in our own lives? But our text, you see, is calling us not to be like that, not to be like them. It's calling us to fix our minds on whatever things are actually true according to the word of God. That's the way to escape the temptations to sin around and within us. We're called to think on whatever things are true. And and secondly, we're called to think on whatever things are honest. A better translation perhaps would be whatever things are, are honorable. In other words, we're to dwell on whatever things are worthy of honor, whatever things are worthy of respect. And, and again, it's the, it's the word of God, not, not the world that determines that. 
that determines what is honorable. The world and our flesh, they beckon us, they beckon us to do what is dishonorable. Or to think on things that are dishonorable. You think about the music, so much of the music that, that you hear all around us. The, the TV shows, the, the, the magazines, the, the movies, most of them don't call our attention to things that are honorable. They call our attention to things that are cheap, to things that are dishonorable. Things that are really often no better than garbage. And yet somehow there's something in us that is just so much easy, more easily drawn to those things instead of, instead of to the great truths of the gospel. The truths like the ones that we confess in the Apostles' Creed. The truths of, of Christ being, being incarnate, being made incarnate, becoming flesh. The truths of his, his atoning death and of his, his being raised and, and, and seated at the right hand of his Father. And our text is saying, those are the things. Those are the things. Think on, think on things that are worthy of honor. The third thing he calls us to think on is what, whatsoever things are just. Whatever things are right. Not, not whatever things are convenient. Not whatever things will benefit me. Not whatever things will make me feel good. Not whatever things I want. It's easy to think about those things, isn't it? God says, no, think about, set your mind on whatever things are just, whatever things agree with God's standard, with his law. That's what we need to fix our thoughts on. That's what all of our decisions in life need to be based on, in all of our circumstances, in all of our relationships, with your girlfriend or your boyfriend, with your spouse, with your coworkers with your employees, with your business contacts, with your parents, with your children, with your brothers and sisters, with, with, with your neighbors, with your friends, with your enemies. Think on whatever things are just, whatever things are right, the things that agree with the commandments of God. You know of someone who did that in the Old Testament? Joseph. Think of Joseph when Potiphar's wife tempted him to lay with her secretly. What did he think on? He didn't think on what, 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 what might feel good. No, but he thought on God. He thought on his law. How can I do this wickedness? He said to her in Genesis 36 verse 9. And sin against God. You see, he was thinking about what was just. That's why he fled. His thoughts were fixed on what was right in the eyes of God. Is that where your thoughts are fixed? They should be. That's what God is calling us to. He's calling us to think on, to fix our thoughts on whatever things are true, whatever things are honorable, whatever things are just, and also, fourthly, whatever things are pure. How much we all need to hear this. Also, you young people, don't need me to tell you that the world we live in does not care of anything about purity. It pushes and it promotes filthy and dirty thinking in the mall, on TV, and on the internet. It's everywhere you go. But the people in the church of God must not think like that. No, instead we're called to set our minds on the things that are pure, the things that are without blemish, the things that are without defect, without filthiness. Is that what we're doing? Then it will show. 
It will show in what you do on your phone. It will show in what you do on your computer and what you read and what you watch. It will show in how you dress. It will show in how much you drink because getting drunk does not promote purity. It will show in how you look at and treat other people. It will show in the words we speak. It will show in the music we listen to. It will show in what we do with our friends. Then our focus, our delight, will be centered on the things that the Bible calls pure. What are the things that the Bible calls pure? The fear of the Lord, the words of the Lord, the wisdom of God. Jesus Christ himself. The fifth, the fifth characteristic of the things we should meditate on is loveliness. Whatsoever is lovely, whatever is pleasing, in other words, or agreeable. And again, that means, first of all, in the eyes of God. But that will show, won't it, in how we think and, and talk about and to other people. You know, how quick, how quick we can be to criticize. And don't misunderstand, there is a place for constructive, uh, humble Criticism, but how easy it is to see and to focus on the apparent faults and the weaknesses and the shortcomings in other people. But what, what our text is saying is don't, don't focus on that. Focus on whatever is lovely. And that means that among other things that we should be, we should be quicker to appreciate and encourage the good. Uh, we should be quicker to appreciate and encourage others for the good that is in them by the grace of God than to criticize them for the bad. It's tremendously easy to criticize. How hard it can be to encourage others. But we should encourage whatever, whatever things are lovely. Think on those things. Encourage our children. Encourage our parents, our, our, our church leaders, each other. Other churches. Even, even our government. Whatsoever things are lovely. But sixth, whatsoever things are of good report. You could translate whatsoever things are commendable. Things like the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, or faithfulness, meekness, humility, self-control. These are the things of, of good report. These are the kinds of things that God calls us to think of, to dwell on, to fix our thoughts on. And so Paul goes on to summarize it. If there be any virtue or excellence, if there be any praise, anything praiseworthy, and again, that means primarily in the eyes of God, those are the things that God calls us to think on. That's what godly thinking looks like. Is that what your thinking looks like? My thinking. Are these the things in verse 8 that our minds dwell on? You know when they are. When they are, we can't help but think much of Jesus Christ. Because that's where all these things are found, aren't they? In perfection, in, in their fullness. He is perfectly true. He is the way, the truth, and the life who teaches the way of God in truth. He's worthy, who, who's more worthy of all honor than him as the one who came as the the mediator between God and men and, and who fully accomplished salvation and has been exalted at the right hand of the Father. Who is more just? Who is more righteous than Him? Who The one who obeyed God, His Father, perfectly on behalf of sinners like you and me. 
Who is the one who is more pure than Jesus Christ? The lamb without blemish and without spot. Who is the one? He is actually the altogether lovely one, the Song of Solomon. There are no weaknesses and shortcomings in him. He's of good report. He's the one of whom it was and it is rightly said. He does all things well. Every true virtue, every excellent thing is found in him because he's the one of whom the Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And so he is the one who deserves our highest praise both now and forever. And so ultimately this call to godly thinking, you see, is a call to think much of Jesus Christ, to gaze on him. One thing I have desired that I might behold the beauty of the Lord. To gaze on him and on his beauty and glory. And when we do, when we do, then that will show in our actions. Because the way we are changed, the way we are transformed, as it says in Romans 12, is by the renewing of our mind. You see, godly thinking leads to godly conduct. We, we can't separate those things. And that's why Paul moves, moves from talking about what we should think on in verse 8 to what we should do in verse 9. Those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do. What are those things? Well, in some ways, of course, they're connected to verse 8. They're the outworking of the things that we think on. But, but just think for a moment to simplify it a little bit. Think about Paul's life. What did he teach and call people to do? Essentially, he called them and he taught them to trust and follow Jesus Christ. That's what he called people to do and, and that's what he himself did. Remember what Paul said in the beginning of, of Philippians 1 in chapter 1, that famous verse, for to me to live is Christ. Christ was his life and he, or rather God through him, is saying to us, you know, you do the same. Make Christ your life. Make him your life. Make, be able to say with Paul, for me to live is Christ. Trust and follow him. Imitate him continually. Don't give up no matter what. That's what God calls us to do. Have you begun to do that? Are you doing that now? Have we begun and are we growing in the practice of godly living? Well, maybe you're thinking, okay, how can I really do this? It's not easy. No, it's not. In fact, left to ourselves, it's impossible. So how can we do this? How can we live in the way that we're called to live here? How can we, as, as Paul said in the other passage we read earlier in Titus 2, how can we live godly in this present world? Well, that brings us to our second point, the source of Godly living, the source. Maybe you're thinking, well, where is that in the text? It's not there explicitly, but it's implied. Look again at what Paul says in verse 9. He says, those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do. We just said that those things refer to trusting and following Jesus Christ, but, but that implies that Paul also told them about Jesus Christ, about what he came to do, about how he accomplished salvation by living a righteous life, perfectly righteous, and yet humbling himself to death, even to the death of the cross. Why? To save sinners. He told them the gospel. And that's the key, you see. 
That's the key, the source, the power for godly living is not something in ourselves. It's not even Paul or anything in Paul. He's an example for sure. He's a pattern of godly living, but he wasn't the source. He couldn't be, and he would never, ever say that. No, the person in the work of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that's the source for godly living. And that means that we must go to him alone, not only for forgiveness, not only for cleansing. And thank God we may go to him for that, but also for our righteousness, not only for righteousness before God, but also for the strength and for the power to live godly. And when you do that, when you go to him, you won't be disappointed. Because he's, he's, he's the Lord. He's all sufficient. There's nothing lacking in him. He's God incarnate, God made flesh. And by his death and resurrection, he not only has obtained righteousness, but also life for those who look to him. And he grants that life by his Holy Spirit. The Spirit's like the cord, right? That cord that plugs us into to Jesus Christ. So that as Paul prays back in Philippians 1 verse 11, we might be filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ. Undo the glory and praise of God. The point is that the Lord Jesus, He's, he's the all-sufficient source for godly living. God's not calling us to live godly in our own strength. No, he's calling us to live godly in and through Jesus Christ in reliance on him. Isn't that so beautiful? Isn't that so encouraging? He doesn't come just with the command, live godly. He comes with the power, with the source to obey the call. But maybe, maybe you say, how, how can I know? How can I know for sure that, that he alone is able to give all I need to do this? How, how can I know for sure that he is all sufficient? Well, you can know because he's also the proven source. And that's where Paul's example comes in. You see, when Paul says the things which you have both learned and heard and seen in me do, he's not boasting in himself. He's, not, he, he, he's boasting in Jesus Christ. He's not saying, look at how great I am. He's saying, look at how great Jesus Christ is. He's not saying, look at what I've done. He's saying, look at what Christ has done in me. And so one commentator, Dennis Johnson, he puts it this way, and I quote, what the Philippians heard and saw in Paul was the effect of Jesus Christ transforming a selfish, sinful man into the beauty of his own image in holiness and love. Paul's example, Paul's example shows that Christ is the proven source of godly living. And he's not, he's not the only example. There are many, many more in Scripture. There are many, many more in the history of the church. And there are many, there are many examples even in our own life. You think of godly parents. You think of godly Godly ministers, godly office bearers, godly teachers, godly siblings, people who, who could and, and can say to us, even if, even if they wouldn't dare to say, of it, say it themselves, but they could, those things you have heard and seen in me do. People who can say to us, be ye followers of me, as also I am of Christ. Do you see, Christ has proved himself over and over and over again to be the all-sufficient source of godly living. 
what an encouragement that is for us to look to Him, to rely on Him, to seek by His power to be like them, like Paul, such examples to others, to our children, to our grandchildren, to, to those around us. Is that something you want? Surely it is or not. How sad it is if you don't. How sad it is if through our carelessness, our lack of concern about godly living, others, perhaps even our own children and grandchildren, end up rejecting Christ and even end up in hell, helped there by our ungodly example. How sad, how terrible that would be. Do you see it doesn't have to be that way? Christ can make you and me examples of godliness. He's the proven, the all-sufficient source of godly living. And not only that, he's a universally available source. He's available to any and all, Jew and Gentile, who will have him, all who will receive him, all who will come to him in repentance and faith, having no worthiness to come empty-handed, no power in themselves. A promise of Christ is a dear, precious promise. It's all who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. Whoever believes in him shall not just have righteousness, forgiveness, but life, everlasting life by the power of the Holy Spirit. Well then, let's look to Christ. Let's rely on Christ. Let's, let's be zealous, as Titus 2 says, be zealous for good works. And let's ask him, Let's come to him in prayer and seek his face and ask him, Lord, help me. Help me to live godly. You know, that's a prayer he delights to hear. It's a prayer he delights to hear and answer because that's why he came. That's why he died on the cross. That's what it says in Titus 2 verse 14. It says he gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a special people zealous of good works. And so let's ask him then to help us. And let's diligently use the means he has given to help us. Let's diligently and earnestly read and listen to the word of God. Let's make use of the sacraments in the right way of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Let's not forsake the worship services, the assembling of ourselves together at church, but consider one another to stir each other up unto love and to good works, exhorting one another uh, all the more as we see the day approaching. I, I know there's reasons, there's good reasons to be absent. But you know, it's sad when the morning service is as full as it is now. In the afternoon, there are benches left empty. Why? Why? God calls us to godly living. And he offers himself, gives us the power through the means. But maybe you're thinking, is godly living really that big of a deal? Well, that brings us briefly, briefly yet to our third point. We've considered the practice and the source of godly living, but the last part of verse 9 tells us about the reward of godly living. 
It tells us what happens when we practice godly living in reliance upon Jesus Christ. Look at what it says, last part of verse 9. And the God of peace shall be with you. That's what will happen. What a reward that is. The God of peace, the God who gives that peace that we read about last week in verse 7, that peace that, that, that passes all understanding and that keeps our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, that God of peace with us. Think just for a few moments what that means. The God of peace shall be with us. It's a promise of blessing. That's a promise of the favor of God. God shall be with us, not far away from us and not against us, but with us. He will come and abide with us as the God of peace. And that means that we will experience, experience the favor of God. We will enjoy it. Oh, what an amazing thing. I mean, how can that be? How can he show us such favor to people such as we are, people who deserve eternal condemnation in and of ourselves? It's only in and through his son, Jesus Christ, through his person and work. It is by Jesus Christ through, being, through faith in him that we are justified and being justified by faith, we have peace with God. We are restored to his favor. But we, experience, we enjoy that favor, you see, experientially by practicing godly living, by living holy lives, by seeking to more and more love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength, and by loving our neighbor as ourselves. Doesn't this promise that the God of peace shall be with you, motivate you to do that then? What a blessing it is to have through life and at the end of life a death, a comfortable sense of God's favor. But it's even more than that. It's, it's more than just a promise of experiencing the favor of God. It's a promise of experiencing fellowship with God. The God of peace shall be with you. It reminds me of that beautiful passage in John 14, verse 23. And many similarities to this one. Jesus says there in John 14, verse 23, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him. And, and, and we will come unto him and make our abode, our home with him. What can be more, what can be better, what can be more amazing than that? To have God, Father and Son come to us by His Holy Spirit and make His home in us, with us. It's mind-blowing. Isn't it? And yet that's the promise. That's the gracious undeserved reward for those who keep the words of the Lord Jesus, for those who live godly lives. What more encouragement? What more motivation do we need? Why would we want to go through life without this, without the God of peace with us? And yet, how often we don't. How often we can live 
how easily we can live trying to serve two masters, God and the world. And we need to repent, don't we? All of us, myself included. Let's not wait any longer. But whatever ways we have been living like the world, let us not continue in them any longer. But let us repent. Let's put, put them far away from us. Let's forsake them. Let us humble ourselves and confess with godly sorrow all of our worldly living, all of our worldly and ungodly thoughts and ungodly conduct. And let's confess that to God and seek His forgiveness in and through Jesus Christ. And He, we will have it. That's His promise. Because He is a God who is ready to pardon. And then let us, in obedience to his call and reliance upon Jesus Christ, resolve, resolve to live godly lives continually and increasingly. That's what he calls us to do. Amen. Let us pray.